So, today I'm talking about Antony and Cleopatra, a play written in 1606-7, first published in the first folio in 1623. So if we think about its nearest neighbours chronologically in Shakespeare's writing, we're thinking about plays like King Lear, Macbeth and Coriolanus. So it's important, I think, and it's important for what I go on to talk about in the lecture, to think about it as coming towards the end of Shakespeare's period of writing tragedies in the first decade of the 17th century, just before he turns to the romances with which he ends his career. And that sense of generic shift or of genres being in some kind of flux is something I'm going to really focus on in this lecture. Antony and Cleopatra has got obvious connections with other Roman plays, perhaps most particularly the earliest Roman play, Titus Andronicus, but also with Julius Caesar and with Coriolanus. Those second two, Julius Caesar and Coriolanus, share the same source with Antony and Cleopatra, Thomas North's translation of Plutarch. Uh, and because we've got such a, such a single major source here uh, with uh, North's Plutarch, it's, this is a really good, uh, Antony and Cleopatra is a really interesting case uh, for a kind of source study for comparing what Shakespeare has done with that source. By presenting a middle-aged version of Romeo and Juliet, it links uh, itself to that play, and with Othello, perhaps, in seeing sexual love as a motor for tragedy. I've chosen to focus today's lecture around that question of tragedy. Whose tragedy is it? Whose tragedy is it? But I'm going to start again, as usual, with a sense of the context and a kind of synopsis for the play. Of course, in particular, the, in particular with this play I found, making an outline or a synopsis uh, of the play is already an act of interpretation. It's not really possible to tell what happens in the play without giving it a spin or without interpreting it. I was thinking about what E.M. Forster says in aspects of the novel uh, about the difference between story and plot. So this is Forster on story and plot. We have defined a story as a narrative of events arranged in their time sequence. A plot is also a narrative of events, the emphasis falling on causality. Then his famous example, the king died and then the queen died, is a story. The king died and then the queen died of grief, is a plot. Okay, so the king died and then the queen died is a story. The king died and then the queen died of grief is a plot. The time sequence is preserved, but the sense of causality overshadows it. So causality is what makes a story into a plot. Consider the death of the queen. If it is in a story, we say, and then. If it is in a plot, we ask, why? Uh, it's quite a nice distinction, even though uh, uh, Foster is clearly talking about, about novels. Uh, turning stories, Shakespeare stories, into plots, or turning plots back into stories, uh, involves... Uh, uh, quite an important level of interpretation and possibly even interpolation, putting things in uh, that aren't actually there. We, t we maybe over-interpret the why because causality, why things happen and the relation between one factor or agent and another is such a particularly crucial feature of tragedy. Why do things happen? In some ways, that's the question tragedy asks. That's what turns tragedy into a plot, not a story. Okay, so let's try and think about uh, what... Uh, what happens in Antony and Cleopatra. The Roman general Antony is in love with the Egyptian empress Cleopatra. He prefers her company in Alexandria 
to his political and domestic responsibilities in Rome. Uh, this is much to the disapproval of the Romans in general, and in particular to Octavius Caesar, uh, with whom Antony uh, is in a, uh, a partnership, in fact a three-way partnership, to rule Rome. Everybody notices what an effect Cleopatra has on Antony, and particularly important in that is the role of Enobarbus, a blunt and loyal soldier. Antony returns from Egypt to Rome on news of the death of his wife Fulvia and news of trouble from a third political rival, Pompey. And back in Rome, he agrees to marry Caesar's sister, Octavia, in an attempt to renew their political alliance. A messenger tells Cleopatra, who is none too pleased. Antony and Caesar agree a peace with Pompey, and the three men drink together, but their amity does not last. Antony hears that Caesar has attacked Pompey and deposed the third weaker triumvir, Lepidus. And so he returns, Antony returns to Egypt, feeling he's been betrayed by Caesar, and sends Octavia, his wife, as an envoy to try to patch things up. Caesar, in fact, declares war on Antony and Cleopatra. And at the sea battle in Actium, the Egyptian fleet is defeated when Antony leaves the fight to follow Cleopatra's ship. He's full of despair at having lost this first battle of Actium, but a second battle comes quickly afterwards where he is successful. On the eve of a third battle, though, the soldiers are all fearful. Enobarbus, the loyal soldier, deserts. The Egyptian fleet surrenders to Caesar. Antony is furious at Cleopatra's behaviour. Cleopatra retreats to her monument and sends a message to him to tell him she has committed suicide. Antony asks his servant Eros to kill him. Eros kills himself, and Antony botches his own suicide. He's taken to Cleopatra's monument to die in her arms. Cleopatra then prepares for her own death, a darkly comic clown brings her a basket of figs with hidden snakes. She dresses in her royal robes, allows a poisonous asp to bite her. She and her handmaidens, Iris and Charmian, die too, and Caesar announces that the lovers shall be buried together. Now, we can see, I think, from that outline of the story that there is a gap between the deaths of the two lovers. Antony's suicide attempt and his arrival mortally wounded to die in Cleopatra's monument are dramatised at the end of Act 4. Act 5 shows us Cleopatra's preparations for her own death cross-cut with Octavius Caesar's increasing control over the conquered Egypt. So, unlike Romeo and Juliet, where the gap between the deaths of the lovers is so brief as to be almost a mistake, that old observation that Romeo and Juliet misses being a comedy by a matter of seconds, Antony and Cleopatra distends the gap between the deaths by a whole act, probably about a seventh of the total length of this long play. So Antony dies at the end of Act 4, and Act 5, where the tragic hero meets usually his death, is given over entirely to Cleopatra. It is her death that ends the play. In this, she has the structural equivalence of Hamlet or Macbeth or King Lear or Othello or, as I was talking about last week, Richard II. She has the key position in the tragedy. Her lifespan and the span of the play are equivalents. One easy answer, then, to the question of whose tragedy is it 
can be answered by analogy structurally between this play and other tragedies, and that analogy, as I've just suggested, would tell us it's Cleopatra's tragedy. Now, if this is true, that the tragic figure in the play is Cleopatra, we might think this marks a distinct change in Shakespeare's work. Some years ago now, the critic Linda Bamber wrote a book on Shakespeare about which all we really need to know is the title, Comic Women, Tragic Men. Comic Women, Tragic Men. Bamber develops an analysis of Shakespeare's plays that identifies male dominance as one of the generic traits of tragedy. And perhaps we need only look at Gertrude or Ophelia or Cordelia as evidence of that. Women in tragedies, in Shakespeare's tragedies, tend to be ancillary victims of the male hero's egotistic downfall. That's often given, say, as the explanation for the death of Cordelia at the end of King Lear. The psyche that Shakespearean tragedy characteristically dissects is a male one. Before you call out, what about Lady Macbeth? Maybe I'll try and preempt that. We could argue that Lady Macbeth exhausts herself trying to get out of that sideline role afforded to women in tragedy. She's very prominent in the first half. She's winning the battle against the genre, I think, by being so prominent. But she really disappears in the second half, sacrificed to Macbeth's own increasing tragic isolation. We could see, then, the role of women as a kind of generic indicator and also as a sign of structural generic shifts. My lecture about Measure for Measure talks about the decline of Isabella, who begins that play as a comic heroine, but as a symbol of and vehicle for the play's turn towards near tragedy, declines uh, to almost nothing in the second half. In this analysis, gender is, or at least contributes towards, genre. Now, women's role, as Bamber identifies, is in comedy, a genre in which uh, women's desires and agency are prominent and women's quests define the shape of the narrative. If there's a play with a central female character, that's to say, in Shakespeare's work, it's almost always a comedy. That's the genre in which women uh, have agency uh, and have action. To have Cleopatra as the play's central character, then, may affirm her as Shakespeare's first female tragic agent. You might want to think, though, whether Juliet should have that accolade. Or it might also be one of the ways in which the notion of tragedy is compromised rather than transformed by the play. Perhaps Cleopatra is the structural tragic figure in Antony and Cleopatra then, since her death and the end of the play are coterminous. But two facts about the play seem to compromise this. The first is that Antony is actually dominant in terms of the number of lines. He has 24% of the lines. Cleopatra has only 19, so 24 to 19. Statistics, again, from uh, the RSC, uh, Jonathan Bate edition of the plays, one of, the, one of its really useful um, uh, uh, statistical uh, parts of its apparatus. The second is the unexpected punctuation of the title of the play in the folio, which gives us the tragedy of Antony, comma, and Cleopatra. The comma 
after Antony may be entirely accidental or incidental. It may be something uh, into which we shouldn't read too much. But it may also suggest that his is the tragedy and Cleopatra a kind of afterthought. But what I want to come to discuss in this lecture is the ways Shakespeare seems to be challenging us to ask about the question of genre in this play. Just as last week when I was talking about Richard II, I suggested the play demands that we ask whether Bolingbroke's actions were legitimate, but actually frustrates any attempt to answer the question. So too, here in Antony and Cleopatra, I think we're being encouraged to ask questions about whose tragedy it is and about the play's genre. But in fact, what we get is a depiction of two lovers set against the geopolitics of a world stage which challenges ideas of tragedy. In some ways, the death of two lovers gives us a double tragedy in which the the second death deepens or amplifies the tragic movement through reiteration. So a tragedy with two tragic heroes then is a double tragedy. It happens twice. In other ways, the second death in the play either undermines the first or is rendered pathetic because of it. That's two tragedies which don't really even add up to one in total. Okay, that's a model where the two deaths actually take away from tragedy rather than uh, adding to it. And I want to show that this links to the ways in which the play's genre teeters between high notions of tragedy and a kind of threat of satiric collapse. And that happens as and through its challenge to the single teleology we associate with tragedy, replaced here with a repeated structure of doubling and duplication. Firstly then, let's think about the deaths of the two lovers. I'm going to think about Antony first. So this is at the end of Act 4. After the Egyptian fleet has surrendered to Caesar's forces, Antony curses Cleopatra. This foul Egyptian hath betrayed me. This foul Egyptian hath betrayed me. For a moment, perhaps even for the first moment in the play, he sounds just like a Roman calling Cleopatra right gypsy just as the disapproving Philo in the play's opening line bemoans the downfall of Antony to be the fan to cool a gypsy's lust. Antony's specific curse, though, on Cleopatra is an interesting one. Let him, Caesar, this is, let him take thee and hoist thee up to the shouting plebeians. Follow his chariot, lie the greatest spot of all thy sex, most monster-like be shown for poorest diminutives. Let him take thee and hoist thee up to the shouting plebeians. So Antony's curse to Cleopatra is that she be taken prisoner and made a show of in Rome. The curse that he, uh, he, he, he issues to her is that she would be turned into a spectacle of humiliation. And as a curse in the play, it works, in that like much of the interaction between these two lovers... It seems designed to provoke or prompt a response, and it does. Cleopatra sends Mardian, her eunuch, to tell Antony that she's killed herself. And on hearing the news, Antony calls on Eros, his servant, to kill him. Eros is, of course, ironically named for the god of love. This isn't Shakespeare's invention. Antony's servant in Plutarch is called Eros. Uh, But Shakespeare really stresses the name by repetition 
of it in the dialogue of the play. Uh, almost 20 times we get the name Eros in the dialogue of a couple of scenes. And in Act 4, scene 14, almost every speech by Antony addresses the servant by name at least once. Okay, and you might want to uh, just think about um, something we had in the lecture on Twelfth Night. Remember that we never hear Viola's name until the very end of the play. So her name uh, is withheld from us, but Eros's name, uh, quite a different technique here, is being absolutely rammed home to us, so we see the irony. Eros, the god of love, won't kill Antony. He would not undertake Antony's command. He says he would rather kill himself to escape the sorrow of Antony's death. So love does not kill Antony. Rather, he attempts to kill himself with his own sword, and it may be intended as a mark of how far he has fallen from the noble Roman remembered in the opening scenes that he cannot commit the most Roman of acts, heroic suicide. But why does Antony attempt suicide? It is prompted by the news of Cleopatra's apparent death, but not only by this. Antony's assessment of himself at this point is that he lives in dishonour, he tells Eros of the fate that awaits him. Wouldst thou be windowed in great Rome and see thy master thus with pleached arms bending down his corrigible neck, his face subdued to penetrative shame whilst the wheeled seat of fortunate Caesar drawn before him branded his baseness that ensued? Wouldst thou be windowed, says Antony, in great Rome, and see thy master thus with pleached arms, bending down his corrigible neck, his face subdued to penetrative shame, whilst the wheeled seat of fortunate Caesar drawn before him branded his baseness that ensued. This is a really interesting cluster of odd words, Latinate words, unusual words, either a concordance or the OED or both, would show us how rarely they occur uh, in Shakespeare's uh, work at this time, so how odd they would have sounded uh, to audiences. This clustering suggests, I think, a particular intellectual effort or strain. We might compare uh, some similar speeches of Angelo in Measure for Measure or of Leontes in The Winter's Tale. And you get this cluster of polysyllabic words, uh, polysyllabic unusual words. Shakespeare's usually doing that, I think, to indicate that the character is not telling us uh, the truth or is, is undergoing some kind of mental torment. But what the speech expresses is the idea, again, of being humiliated in public view in Rome. Antony talks about himself in the third person, thy master, his corrigible neck, his face, drawn before him. And that idea of himself in the third person being humiliated is crucial to Antony's despair. We can see immediately then that this vision of his own fate is closely allied to the curse of public humiliation he placed on Cleopatra that I quoted just a minute ago. And if we hop forward, hopping uh, a word in this play associated with Cleopatra and a kind of uh, informal liveliness, if we hop forward an act to Cleopatra's own preparations for death, we can see this same sentiment about humiliation uh, again. This is a famous speech from the end, uh, which I've, I've, I've collapsed uh, together. Uh, it's actually two speeches. Thou, an Egyptian puppet, shall be shown in Rome as well as I. This is Cleopatra talking to Iris and Charmin. Mechanic slaves with greasy aprons, rules and hammers shall uplift us to the view. The quick comedians extemporally will stage us and present our Alexandrian revels. Antony shall be brought drunken forth, 
and I shall see some squeaking Cleopatra buoy my greatness in the posture of a whore. So thou, an Egyptian puppet, shall be shown in Rome as well as I. Mechanic slaves with greasy aprons, rules and hammers shall uplift us to the view. It's a kind of image of the theatre, which comes out of Ben Jonson, really, a sense that people who go to the theatre are uh, deplorably uh, low-status um, people, sort of sullying uh, what, they, what they watch. Greasy aprons, really interesting idea. When Cleopatra lifts the poisonous snake, the asp, to her breast, she identifies that her death is designed to cheat Caesar of victory. She addresses the asp, Couldst thou speak that I might hear thee call great Caesar ass unpolicied? Great Caesar ass unpolicied. Now I've cited these three examples to suggest that what the lovers express is the fear not of parting from each other, but of being publicly humiliated. Although the play is typically categorised as a tragedy of love, to accept this at face value may be merely to read the play in the way it would like to be read, to accept its own compelling mythos about itself. What Antony and Cleopatra fear is public show, a gaping audience witnessing their degradation, and the irony is, of course, that that is just what they uh, are already suffering. They're already on the stage. Cleopatra is already played by a young male actor buoying her greatness. What they fear has a kind of inevitability about it because it's already come to pass. So then, while love, jealousy and separation are part of this story, I don't think they're by any means the most pressing motives. John Dryden's rewriting of Antony and Cleopatra in the late 17th century under the title All for Love, All for Love, curbs the play's excessive geography and timescale, but it also rewrites its motive. Perhaps he, could, he should have called the play All for Shame. Since the Second World War, one of the most dominant paradigms in anthropology has been the distinction between cultures structured around the principle of guilt and, and cultures structured around the principle of shame. The theory was developed by Ruth Benedict uh, at the end of the Second World War to conceptualise a perceived difference between the way the Japanese and the Americans would uh, process, would suffer, would think about what had happened in the war. Put simply, and I'm using Benedict's own definition, this, is a, this has been a very important paradigm which has undergone a lot of shifts uh, since then, but what Benedict argues is that guilt and shame cultures differ in the ways their individuals experience having done something wrong, having done something bad. Shame tends to imagine this experience, the experience of having done something bad, in terms of negative evaluations by other people. Okay, so shame is something uh, which is related to how other people perceive you and therefore it's seen to be externally orientated. That's where, you, that, that's where shame comes from. It comes from an interaction with people outside of yourself. Guilt, by contrast, is imagined as a negative evaluation by the self. It's internally oriented. Shame, then, is a response about failing to meet external or public standards or about exposing one's defects to public gaze. Guilt is about failing to live up to one's own internal standards. If I feel bad for having stolen a library book and not being found out because I know it's the wrong thing to do, I'm suffering guilt. 
if I feel bad for having stolen a library book because I fear I will be named and shamed and everybody will laugh at me, then I'm suffering shame. Work by psychologists has suggested that guilt-filled individuals experience empathy for others, whereas shame-prone individuals are more likely to avoid others and withdraw from them. As that original Japanese-American paradigm illustrated, some societies are seen to be more inclined generally to shame or guilt. Highly individualistic capitalist countries such as the USA or the UK tend towards an inner orientation of guilt. Collectivist communitarian countries like China or the USSR tend towards the external orientation of shame. Okay, so I hope that's a, a, a reasonably clear uh, uh, paradigm. I don't think the details of it, we're not trying to be anthropological, but the details of it uh, are not too important to us. But what I think is important is uh, the externally oriented feeling of shame versus the internally experienced feeling of guilt. I hope that thumbnail of that paradigm, the shame-guilt paradigm, makes it clear to us that Antony and Cleopatra are both shame-oriented individuals. Okay, so those quotations that I read about what they fear is they fear shame. Neither Antony nor Cleopatra, I think, ever uh, suggest that they themselves have done anything wrong. But what they do fear is the sense that, uh, of how other people will judge or look at them. Each anticipates their ultimate degradation in terms of a public show of being paraded through the streets of Rome in Caesar's triumph. Cleopatra's fear then of being ridiculed as some squeaking Cleopatra boys her greatness is the inverse or the opposite of all those people who, in Enobarbus's famous speech, the barge she sat in like a burnished throne, all went to gaze on Cleopatra and made a gap in nature. To be shamed and to be subject to scornful public view is what Antony and Cleopatra both fear and what they conceptualise themselves as avoiding in seeking their deaths. Now, shame seems to me a potentially interesting concept in relation to tragedy, and particularly in relation to Shakespeare's tragedies. Guilt, as I've suggested, has been conceptualised as a more individualistic and interior emotion, and therefore we might see it as a more appropriately tragic motivation. People, uh, pe people uh, do what they do in tragedies because of a feeling, an interior feeling, uh, about how they have behaved. According to this view, Enobarbus, Antony's loyal servant, is an alternative tragic centre in the play, since he alone acts from guilt. I have done ill, says Enobarbus, of which I do accuse myself so sorely that I will joy no more. I have done ill, of which I do accuse myself so sorely that I will joy no more. Accusing myself is a keynote of guilt. Being windowed in Rome, looked at from out of a window, is a keynote of shame. Having shame, then, as a major motivation in a tragedy reorients the locus of judgment from the individual to the community. Just as Antony and Cleopatra challenges the model of individual tragedy Shakespeare had been previously working on by its double protagonists, that's to say, it also shifts the balance away from interior guilt to exterior shame. It turns the genre inside out. So I think that shame is part of a movement from interiority to exteriority more generally in this play. 
What we might look at in previous tragedies is Shakespeare's increasing development of soliloquy as a way to see what's inside. The, the soliloquy, of course, has the character alone on stage and solitude serves to authenticate what they're saying. It's because they are alone on stage, or so the fiction has it, that what they're saying must be true. Tragedies like Macbeth and Hamlet make extensive use of soliloquy to connect us with the inner conflict of their protagonists. Antony and Cleopatra, by contrast, makes almost no use of soliloquy in its main characters. There are almost no soliloquies in Antony and Cleopatra. Nor, in fact, does Coriolanus, written almost at the same time, and again showing a kind of shame-oriented tragedy. So Shakespeare seems to have moved beyond the dramaturgy of the previous tragedies. In this play, we never see our lovers alone. Instead, their tragedy proceeds via, and is maybe a, a consequence of, a complete lack of privacy in the play. When Caesar delivers his epitaph for Antony and Cleopatra at the end of the play, his adjective for them is perhaps surprising. No grave upon the earth, says Caesar, no grave upon the earth shall clip in it a pair so famous. Their predominant characteristic is then not passion, pride, grandeur, not even love, but that of being famous, a pair so famous. Antony and Cleopatra are celebrities, and as with modern celebrities, what we see is always a performance of themselves. In this reading, the play is a kind of hello photo story, artfully accessorised with Eastern decorative influences, in which we never see the lovers alone, but, except in some, uh, but, but instead in some carefully arranged tableau. Flirtation, tantrum, grandiloquence, and perhaps love too, are all played out for the cameras or for the audience. We could almost say that these are characters who know we, the audience, are there, because they're doing it all for our benefit. The flip, the flip side of the shame culture in this context is not guilt as its opposite, but its preferred version, performance. All behaviour is externally oriented in this play. It's about a show, it's about a performance, it's done for the benefit of others. In that question... Sorry, in that culture, the question of authenticity, which many critics have asked, does Cleopatra or Antony really love Antony or Cleopatra, that question of the authenticity of the emotion, becomes, of course, completely unanswerable. How would or could we know? Uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a version of all kinds of questions we might have about celebrity marriages, for instance. We see a version of them uh, which is generically constructed for our view, uh, we, we never get any sense uh, of what it might be really like or whether it really exists. In part, then, Antony and Cleopatra anticipates the difficulties of understanding public individuals, but I think it does more than this. It acknowledges, uh, after an attempt through those other tragedies, to, to show us what the individual is like, to use soliloquy to show us the interior. At this point, I think Shakespeare actually acknowledges that the interior is utterly inscrutable. Unlike the heavily soliloquised access then to those other tragic characters, here we see humans constructed through dialogue, performance and pretense. Like Caesar, all we really know at the end of the play is that the pair were famous and that our presence at this play 
has reinforced their celebrity. So, the answer to the question of whose tragedy it is has led us into a suggestion that whosever tragedy it might be, it's a tragedy of exteriority, not interiority, a tragedy of public performance rather than private emotion, uh, a tragedy that we might characterise a tragedy of shame rather than guilt. And seeing this may help us feel that Rome and Egypt, which are often, always in fact, characterised as opposites in the play, are actually rather closer and more similar than they might appear. It's customary for criticism, and particularly uh, for theatrical practice, to map the play's central dichotomy between Rome and Egypt onto a range of related binary oppositions, masculine and feminine, reason and emotion, head and heart, west and east. In many ways, Antony and Cleopatra encourages this kind of bifurcation, this sense that we have uh, opposite places, opposite natures, opposite ways of being. The play develops the concern which is central to all of Shakespeare's Roman plays, the question of Rome itself, the nature of Rome itself. In Titus Andronicus, that question is anatomised as the conflict between Romans and Goths. But in Julius Caesar and Coriolanus, the, 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 the question and the debate over the nature of Rome is one conducted within the Roman polity itself. Here, Rome seems to be constructed in clear opposition to the Egypt of Cleopatra's court. The scenes alternate between the two locations as this play experiments with a more radical use of place than we have seen before in Shakespeare's plays particularly, I think, the long acts three and four, which are made up of short cinematic scenes cross-cutting between the two protagonists. Productions of the play tend towards designs which emphasise intrinsic differences between Rome and Egypt. Rome is all sterile, hard edges and harsh lighting. Egypt is an Orientalist fantasia of cushions and music and sex. As often in the kind of binary understanding of the early modern period, that difference is focalised in the difference between two women, a version of the virgin whore dichotomy which places Cleopatra in contrast with Antony's Roman wife, Octavia. Antony, of course, is caught between these two worlds, but so too are the audience. Rather, as in Henry IV, part one, we experience Prince Hal's conflict between the world of his father's court and the world of Falstaff in the taverns as the difference between boring scenes and enjoyable ones. I'm going to talk more about Henry IV, part one, in a couple of weeks. So, too, in Antony and Cleopatra, we can immediately see that Rome is less attractive than Egypt. In dramatic terms, it's less interesting. We, would, we, like Antony, would rather be in the scenes with Cleopatra than the scenes with Caesar. Interestingly, the play begins with a short, disapproving prologue from two Romans talking about how Antony has been transformed into a strumpet's fool. But then it immediately cedes the stage to a long Egyptian sequence in which Cleopatra enacts theatrically the allure she holds over Antony. The audience, too, I think, is seduced. If Antony and Cleopatra is a Roman play in which the Romans ultimately win, it's a play which puts up a good fight. It doesn't want to be a Roman play. 
bookended by Egyptian scenes, Rome seems an unattractive, anti-theatrical antagonist. There will be no play about Octavius Caesar. So while it's easy to see the differences, though, between the two worlds, the framework of a shame culture perhaps allows us to see their similarities. To be Roman or to be Egyptian in this play is to be public. Antony is a triumvir of Rome, Cleopatra an Egyptian queen. These are public figures, not private lovers. It's sort of a cliche in Shakespeare criticism to talk about a, a conflict between public and private. I don't think we get a conflict here, I just don't think we get anything private. I don't think the conflict actually uh, tr troubles, tr troubles them. It's not in a way like... Uh, it's not a way like the trouble Brutus has uh, in Julius Caesar. This is a play about public show. It's interesting, I think, that all Shakespeare's plays about pairs of lovers, the early uh, romantic Romeo and Juliet and the satiric Troilus and Cressida, as well as Antony and Cleopatra, stress the extent to which their protagonists cannot be private individuals. Thus, reports of Antony's previous heroism or of Cleopatra's charisma aboard her legendary barge equally identify display, show and consumption by a watching public as constitutive of these titanic figures' greatness. They are great because they're famous, not the other way around. Both are in the public eye. Both, in Caesar's terms, are famous. So this is a tragedy, I think, seen from the outside, experienced on the outside, oriented towards the outside. What's missing is interiority, privacy, uh, and the secret individual. And I think that's, that, that absence is something uh, which, uh, which has troubled readers and theatre-goers uh, uh, ever since the play was first put on. So the idea that the tragedy is seen and experienced and oriented towards the outside may have an impact on how we answer that question about how genre works in it. A play focusing on a central couple that works through dialogue and display is actually a comedy, not a tragedy. Just as Cleopatra's final line, husband, I come, attempts to recast death, the ending of a tragedy, as marriage, the ending of a comedy. So the, the, the genre of comedy abuts this difficult play. But there are other genres also uh, crowding in. Uh, and what I want to do in, in the next short section is to answer the question of whose tragedy this play is by suggesting that it's no one's, that the play is not really a tragedy at all. Two genres, then, might help us displace tragedy as the most prominent generic framework for considering Antony and Cleopatra, and I want to suggest that they are satire and farce. Let's take farce first. Although farce as a form of fast-moving physical comedy is not entirely distinct from tragedy, John Mortimer famously described farce as tragedy at a thousand revolutions a minute, so farce is tragedy speeded up. The absence of interiority in farce, or the absence of time for reflection, would seem to place it as an opposite of tragedy. But not necessarily so in a play like Antony and Cleopatra, which, as we've already established, is dominated by exteriors and by speed. The turns of the battle sequences and the interplay between the lovers in Act 4, for example, have the capacity to be farcical. The male Cleopatra, imagining herself played by a boy actor at the end of the play, teeters on a kind of farcical collapse. 
but we may actually feel that this ground has already been occupied in the aftermath of Antony's suicide attempt. Brought at the end of Act 4 to Cleopatra's monument, which was probably represented by the gallery above the stage, Antony's inert body is raised to die in her arms. But rather than being presented as a moment of exquisite pathos, this action is fatally compromised by its stage awkwardness. Raising a dead weight some 15 feet above the stage, presumably on a rope, cannot have been easy. And the physical difficulties of this action are stressed by Cleopatra's dialogue. How heavy weighs my lord? Our strength is all gone into heaviness. It's even more expressed, though, I think, by this wonderful stage direction. They heave Antony aloft to Cleopatra. They heave Antony aloft to Cleopatra. Heave, applied to a human being, indicates both significant, uh, rather uh, graceless or inelegant physical action on the part of the women, and a grotesquely dehumanised heaviness on the part of Antony. One review of an all-male production at the Rebuilt Globe Theatre in 1999 felt that the lifting of the dying hero up to Cleopatra's monument is inadvertently hilarious, with the captured queen of, of the Nile and a big beefy Charmian hauling up the rope as if they were energetically raising the mainsail on some unwieldy galleon. The review, though, suggested that this ending to Act 4 set the final act of the play on a farcical tone. After that, uh, after that, Benedict Nightingale says, after that, the opening night audience clearly found it tough to continue suspending its disbelief in a male heroine. The description of the effect of performance is, I think, well made, but perhaps the suggestion that the hilarity was inadvertent underestimates... Shakespeare's satiric power to deflate his own mythos and that of his characters. That's to say, as Antony is being raised up into the monument, he's being brought down uh, uh, into a kind of ridiculous figure. This is a, this is a, a scene of ridicule and, and humour, farcical humour, rather than of pathos. So we've got an aspiration uh, in physical and uh, in spiritual or emotional terms, which is brought down uh, by uh, physical and uh, farcical uh, aspects. That moves us, I think, from farce into satire, a genre critics have associated with this period of Shakespeare's works. We might include Coriolanus and Timon of Athens uh, in that group of satires at this point. We may feel that the simultaneous and con contradictory presentation of Antony, at once hero and loser, creates the kind of generic instability in the play we associate with satire. Looked at in this way, Antony and Cleopatra might be seen as a play of divergent and incompatible sympathies, rather similar to, to an analysis which has been done on Henry V, and which I talk about in my lecture on that play. Here, Antony and Cleopatra would be both heroic and pathetic, tragic and satire, noble and farcical depending which way you look. Critics have variously described Antony and Cleopatra as a history play, a problem play, and a comical tragedy. But we might also think about its relation to epic, in particular its echo of Virgil's Aeneid. Antony and Cleopatra revisits Virgil's account of the relation, the foundational relation between Rome and femininity, 
because in the Aeneas, in the Aeneid, Aeneas must leave his lover, another foreign queen, Dido, queen of Carthage, in order to fulfil his destiny and found Rome. To be Roman in the Aeneid is founded on uh, des the desertion of uh, a foreign female queen. Okay, so we can see how Antony is sort of failing to do that, he's failing to be Aeneas uh, there. Shakespeare's Antony replays Aeneas's conflict between desire and responsibility in a different post-heroic key. We might think that that's uh, akin, maybe, to the sardonic rewriting of Homeric myth in Troilus and Cressida. So, my initial question about whose tragedy the play represents was first a formal question or a formalist question about whether we should read Antony and Cleopatra or some portmanteau identity of them both as tragic protagonist. In the second part of the lecture, though, I've tried to open up some alternative generic readings for the play, or maybe to try and suggest that just as the protagonists of Antony and Cleopatra imagine themselves pushing at the limits of their world, so their play pushes in different generic directions. I think in withdrawing from the technique of soliloquy used so much previously in the tragedy, Shakespeare seems to be deliberately experimenting with the form of this play. Uh, it's a very long and unwieldy, but rather aspirant drama. I don't think it's an entirely successful experiment. There is not much evidence to suggest it's popular in its, in its own time, and the play's critical history has always struggled um, to, to define uh, and to come to terms with uh, its simultaneous uh, sort of self-aggrandizement and self-deflation. You might be interested to look at reviews of recent productions, which always tend to feel disappointed. Uh, they always feel that the central actors are not big enough to fill the roles. Uh, and, but they always suggest that that's uh, a, a sort of uh, uh, a kind of failure of this particular production. I think it may actually be a failure uh, or a mismatch between expectation, between hyperbole and uh, over-the-top rhetoric and uh, the more mundane or the more uh, physical or material uh, uh, embodiments of this on the stage, which is actually intrinsic to the play. It's not, it's not about poor, poor productions or bad casting. I think it may be intrinsic uh, to the play's own self-satirising. Now, the play I'm going to talk about next time could not actually be more different from this. This time, Shakespeare contains his play within the classical unities of time, place, and action, narrowing the scope and focus, just as in Antony and Cleopatra he had let them go uh, completely wild. That play is The Tempest, and I think the question I want to ask is, is Prospero Shakespeare? Is Prospero Shakespeare? So I hope I'll see you then. Thank you.